completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. It seems like everyone today is talking about automation and what it's going to do to our jobs. In 20 years, what will employment even look like? That's why today I'm talking with Marcella Sapone and Jessica Beck, the co-founders of Hello Alfred, a personal butler service. It'd be easy to mistake Hello Alfred for just another iteration of the gig economy. But Beck and Sapone have built their company differently. They want Hello Alfred to be a model for how employment should be structured for the future economy. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. How did you two meet and come up with the idea for Hello Alfred? Uh, so Marcella and I, this is Jess, Marcella and I met uh, when we were at HBS. Uh, so we were first-year students, and we built Hello Alfred because we needed it. So we were busy professionals doing our first thing at school, and we had the need ourselves. Yeah, so Marcella, tell us a little bit more about um, building off that, what it is that Hello Alfred does um, for its customers. So what we do is we match two things, service uh, at the hands of trustworthy, trained uh, W-2 employees who are going to be visiting your home every week, and technology that brings together all the different services that are accessible in an on-demand way. So that's grocery shopping, dry cleaning, packages, prescriptions, as well as a very long tail of special requests. And the idea is that you have um, somebody that you can delegate the things you don't want to do. Makes sense. So there's there's two things in there that um, kind of stand out to me. Uh, the first is um, this idea of, of the right technology. So a little while ago on the show, we had a woman named Sarah Moskoff who was on to talk about her parenting app, Winnie. Uh, and she said that one of the things that she learned when developing Winnie was that you need to be solving a problem using technology that should be solved by using technology. So there's a lot of businesses out there that stumble because they're trying to apply tech to something that just doesn't really fit. Does that resonate with you guys? And, and how do you know that your company is solving a problem best addressed by tech? I mean, it's a great point made by Sarah. And I, I remember she's actually, she used to be the head of product at uh, Postmates. So uh, Postmates is a little bit similar to us in that yeah. we do deliveries. But I mean, for us, it's, it's really focusing on the human part of it here and having service at the hands of human beings. The technology is a tool that enables us to do that and making it efficient so that we get the price down to a place where a number of people are able to get help um, in a, at an accessible price point. How does the technology drive efficiency in that way? So the product is powered by the technology and it solves a traveling salesman problem. What's the most efficient route to uh, visit different service providers and to visit our customers? The other thing it does is allow us to batch thousands of orders at the same time and send them to our vendors. So we're automating your weekly schedule and routine. And then from there, we get a lot smarter and we begin to anticipate you. So our customers are not a, it's not a delivery service. We are part of your life and we're here to make your life easier. And we're going to be visiting you 52 weeks out of the year if you want us to. And that's kind of the standard. 
And as a result, we get to know you. We know when you're going to run out of eggs. We know when you're on vacation. We know when your your pet needs a haircut. And those are silly examples. But having the feeling of being taken care of and walking into a home that feels like your home, I think is a very special and unique thing. Well, I, th- I think that that's interesting, too, because, you know, it really is kind of a competitive differentiator for you guys um, in that there are a lot of service and delivery services out there. But what st- sets you guys apart is that connection to the individual, to the home life. And nowhere is that truer than in the second point, uh, which you brought up earlier, which is the fact that your employees are W-2 employees as opposed to um, contractors or the gig economy style employee. Can you tell me a little bit about why you made that decision and, and how it's changed the way that you guys operate from maybe some of your competitors? Yeah. Uh, I mean, at the time for us, it felt like a smaller decision and just felt like the right one. We put a lot of thought into it, but it's actually become perhaps one of the more profound things that have shaped our company and the culture that we have here. And fundamentally, the idea was when we had the choice between contractors and W-2 employees, we knew that at the end of the day, uh, the actual service is being provided by these folks who are our ambassadors and who are going to do one thing that no other brand in the world does, which is have access to your home. And that level mm-hmm. of trust required us to really vet our employees and to train them. Uh, and as a result, we, we just structured the business model to be able to support a higher wage and to support people who wanted to have part-time and full-time work. And really we're looking for folks who would enjoy and, and find a lot of uh, meaning out of the work. And a large portion of them were actually stay-at-home moms. And so we were working to you know get them back into the workforce. And part of what was required is to make some kind of flexibility. And so what we ran into is this uh, contrast between 1099 and W-2 where there is a false dichotomy that says, for flexibility, you need to be a contractor. Uh, we really yeah. tried to make it uh, that our model, we could pay W-2 wages. You would get the protections and benefits of being an employee. If you worked over a certain number of hours, 30 hours in our case, you would get health care and benefits. But you could also have a, a very flexible flexible schedule and choose what hours uh, and what days you wanted to work. Yeah, so was that hard to convince your investors of? Is that It seems like a kind of a decision that is atypical for a reason, but maybe not. Did you have a hard time convincing other people that that was the way to go? It was a really hard decision to execute. It meant that our cost structure had 30 or 40% more in it. It meant that instead of onboarding 100,000 customers that signed up for the service on day one, we had to structure um, service runs around density and making sure we had enough customers on a, a city block before we launched a neighborhood. It meant really educating ourselves on the different employment laws in, in three different geographies, which are quite complicated. And, right. And most importantly, this is your question, was convincing our investors who are putting their name and capital on the line to do something that was the antithesis to what everyone else was doing. We had to find the right investors. And I, I'm, we have very supportive investors, Bijan Sabay, who's at Spark Capital, um, and Scott Sandell at NEA who really understood that the special thing that we were doing that was different was going inside people's homes and that it required us to do something different. So, I mean, it really is fascinating how a what seems like a small decision, you know, given time can actually really serve to underscore the values of your company, the values of the two of you as founders and 
the differentiation that is going to potentially, you know, keep you around longer than the rest of the gig economy. Do you think that you'll see other companies following suit with this kind of a model, shifting from the 1099 model to something that's a little bit more permanent but still allows for flexibility? Yeah, and I think it's already been happening. In the last year and a half um, that we've run the business, we've also been highly involved in speaking to a lot of our peers at these companies and giving them a blueprint on how to do it. We've been really active in Washington, D.C., both at the Department of Labor and working with the former Secretary of Labor and Brookings Institute to make suggestions on how we can get to a new classification of workers that really works with today's world in which we have many jobs and we're using the internet to find jobs and we might not really have this sense of a one anchoring employer um, and that we need to take these protection and benefits that are part of employment and make them a general security that all of us get as citizens. So it's a much bigger issue and it, it in terms of like the macro changes that need to happen. And I think, you know, Lyft and Uber can make a case and, and they would be right in saying that we also need to make some really big structural changes to how we think about work. So this isn't them, you know, being the bad guy necessarily. Sure. But I do think that given the legal constraints and the regulations and just the truth where we are today, a really thoughtful approach is to say, am I creating a good job? And that more of the startups that are taking um, human beings and celebrating them in their business model are asking that question and uh, that we are starting to focus on profitability and business models that scale and have unit economics that make sense on day one. So there's been some pretty big changes to the mentality of venture-backed startups, and I think a lot of it actually has come come out of this question of, are we creating good jobs and what jobs are we creating? It sounds like you think that neither of those two buckets are really sufficient enough and there does need to be a new classification here of employment of, of workers. You mentioned talking with the Secretary of Labor and um, government about this. What sorts of guidance do you have for them and for all of us around what that next level of employment needs to look like? Well, this is a big question. I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's a, it's an important one, though. I mean, I think I, every every time I look around, all I see are, are signs that you know, current models aren't really sustainable in terms of the types of work that are out there as, as things become more automated. So it's it's really fascinating to me, and I think this is like the crux of your story, that this one decision that you made all those years ago, even before its time, kind of hit at something that is now a, a major sociological question for us as a, as a, as a society. I, and I agree, and I, I think it's, you can almost say that this is the issue, right? How are we spending our time? And that is also partly why we brought, built the product. There are three building blocks that are um, the foundation for what makes a job a good job, and that are, is benefits like healthcare, protections like workers' compensation, fair hiring practices, safety practices, and training training that gets back to this idea of your job should be getting better over time and that employers should not be taking advantage of of, um, you in terms of having you do something that's really menial, but giving you a career path, giving you exportable uh, skills that you can take on to your next job as well. And that those three things are really hard to have on day one in a small business. 
And so in terms of what I, advice I have for all, for all of us in, in, in policymakers is to really think about what pieces of the protections that are a part of employment can be more of a universal safety net, really, that right. applies to anyone who's doing work of any kind. There's a lot of work on, on benefits also being uh, portable benefits that you can take with you, and, and that kind of is in line where, with Obamacare. And, and then training, there's a lot uh, of onus on us. I think that, you know, it, it, now a career path is not as obvious as it was. You don't, you know, you get your SAT, perfect SATs, get into an Ivy League school, go work at a bank or a consulting firm, um, maybe go work at a, a big Fortune 500 company. Pathways aren't clear anymore. And so we have to be thoughtful as individuals, again, back to thinking about how you're spending your time in terms of what trajectory and career path we want to create for ourselves and what skills we need to learn and apprentice to get there. So I've done some reading on how how your company works, and it seems that a lot of that training, a lot of that ownership is kind of built into your company in terms of how you empower your employees. So helping to make decisions around hiring, um, around procedures. Can you tell me a little bit about how that idea manifests within Hello Alfred? Yeah. So like I mentioned, the Alfred Home Managers, there is a big contingent of them that used to be stay-at-home moms, but there's also a pretty diverse um, group of folks that are, are artists or writers or therapists that are looking for flexible work. So there are people who are bringing very different perspectives and talents to the table. And over time, what has happened is there's a guild mentality to the job where uh, each Alfred has a group of clients that they're serving um, in a dedicated way week after week. We wanted to share best practices. So we started to begin to switch people's clients after some period of time. And what we noticed is that the entire system got better and customer feedback went up. And so we basically handed over all of training and hiring to our Alfred client managers and and promoted some to take it on full time. But today the training is ongoing and and it's weekly and we're giving people skills in in hospitality. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. How does how do you scale that? Like how do you in a, in a workforce where you're dealing with people who are, I mean they're they're W2 employees, but they are more um, sort of more follow a, a contract um, or flexible work schedule. How do you scale that kind of guild mentality and training into into the way that your employees work? So two ways. One is probably obvious, and that's culture and how you build culture. A lot has to do with who you're hiring and how quickly you're hiring. There's a rule that says you shouldn't double your employee base above that. You start to lose some of the cultural tenets. Um, we sp- a lot we think a lot about the touch points um, that we have and I can get more into that but the second is I really look to Starbucks as um, a model an example of how to scale a service um, they are fundamentally a service franchise and they mm-hmm. if you think about how a startup a Starbucks is set up there's a workflow there where a lot of thought and operations and time has been put into optimizing that workflow and so that just like Starbucks, we, we move around the home in a pretty standardized way. And that stand, those standards are changing, getting updated and getting better um, as we learn more. And then making it part of the job and incentivizing people to make the entire system better. We like to say that we don't have one customer. In terms of our end users, we have only primary customers, which are our Alfred client managers. They are our customers. And so what are the tools that we're creating to make their job easier, but to share some of their learnings? 
And what we've started to do is have that be something that they do at the end of the day. So there's reflections at the end of the day where they're commenting on things. And then there's small groups that meet on Friday to start to say, what are different services we can bring onto the platform? What are changes that we can make to the tools? Like as simple as this button is, uh, I keep hitting it with my thumb and it's really (laughs) annoying to, I think we should stop taking the plastic off of uh, the shirts because they're getting wrinkled. I mean, stuff like that. What are some of the milestones that stand out to you along the way where the two of you looked at each other and said, we are a different type company right now, or we're at a different stage? The moment that stands out to me that made this real and clearly uh, said, this is what we're going to do, and uh, as long as we can uh, make it successful, was Mm -hmm. TechCrunch Disrupt when we launched the business. We, we ended up winning that competition, and it's kind of made fun of a little bit in, in the Silicon Valley show, which, which came out basically at the same time. And it was true. At that time, when we launched at TechCrunch, to your question about are we really a tech company, people reacted with, has Silicon Valley run out of ideas? Huh. So just for people who are listening who, are, who aren't familiar with that, what was it that came out of TechCrunch Disrupt? What was it that um, was the sticking point there? Well, one, it's where we came, we launched the business officially. Yep. Uh, two, it gave us a lot of visibility on the national stage. We got a lot of press, uh, a lot of people sign up, and a lot of people who wanted to work for us, which was really interesting. I just think that at the time, the closest analogy people had was Uber, and so it felt a little bit like it was Uber for people or Uber yeah. for different words that I don't like to say. It's just just not what we are. So there's two things that happened at, at that moment. One, hey, we just announced to the world that we're a real business and we're going all in. And two, everybody thinks that you're A, and yet so deeply in your, in your business model, you're actually the opposite of that, which is W2, caring about the employees, really focusing on the art of service, uh, and also just talking about work that is unpaid labor. So a whole class of work that p- women pr- predominantly do. And yeah. trying to have a conversation about that without talking about it and just saying, look, this is meaningful, this is valuable, and people will pay for it because it allows them to stay in their careers, to have a family, to have a personal life, to take care of themselves, and not have to think about the 30 hours of housework that are happening in most American households. Okay, so... So that's huge. That's fascinating to me. How do you challenge that when, when somebody just says, oh, it's just Uber for X? Um, you know, in the beginning, I, I would get really frustrated um, and if I push back and have a whole conversation and, and be combative about it. And I had to get to a place where I really started listening. What we did was create a giant list of all of the reasons people uh, – a, thought this was a terrible idea, B, would never use the service, uh, and C, how people misunderstood or, uh, or different ideas of what we were. And we took that giant list and we created different buckets of things and then we started to lean into the objections. So on our website, we have a page of testimonials and those testimonials are picked specifically to uh, resonate with different audiences. So a family with young kids a working uh, young professional um, who feels guilty about asking for help. Somebody who uh, feels like uh, this is really more about being lazy 
there's a, there's a whole testimonial more about how this fundamentally has made their life possible because of constraints that they have from a health perspective. So leaning into the objections really helped us. And two, you know, just getting comfortable with it is okay that not everyone out there understands right away and that if you go slowly in a sustainable format and if we can control our destiny by building a business and not a startup, which meant that we were really gearing for profitability from day one and we are profitable right now, that we would be able to tell our story over a longer period of time. That's really helpful. You talk about going slowly and and getting the steps right so that you can become profitable. How do you go slow in a world, particularly Silicon Valley, that is so focused on speed? It's a good question. Uh, and, you know, it's something that I meditate on and ha- don't have a perfect answer for. But I have seen different press cycles and I've seen companies that I thought were no brainers and founders who I looked up to fail and, and shut their business down. Uh, and and the world forgets so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we need to focus on building real things and not, uh, I, there's a lot of people who want to start businesses because it sounds good. It's a yeah. really, really, really hard job. I, I would recommend that everyone has a boss. It's a luxury. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Much like time. Um, All right. So as we wind down here, I want to kind of close out returning to this idea of the future of the on-demand economy. When you look around, you guys are in the thick of it right now. You're seeing things change at a rapid pace. What trend are you most excited about in your industry in particular? What are you watching right now? So so one thing I'm I'm fascinated by and and excited about, uh, so people talk a lot about machine learning and AI and and automation. The the thing that is going to be a I think real about it is that it will be a commodity. So folks like Google and um, IBM Watson will allow us to add AI into our products and to do it when the data set isn't monstrous. So we're learning how to do it to estimate and anticipate things with much less data. And for us, that would be um, just huge because it would allow us to be much more thoughtful and to make your home not only a home that has service in it, but an intelligent home. So I think a lot of businesses, you're going to see people who are going to take um, accounting plus AI and uh, legal help plus AI and my email productivity plus AI. And those are those are all examples that are, are more service-based because those are, I'm thinking, smaller businesses that folks are doing. But that, that's what I mean. I mean, someone with a small business could even take advantage of that. Yeah. And so how do you think that your company will start to shift um, as it becomes more of a commodity? It's a great question. I, th- I think that thinking about it as an operating system where mm-hmm. we can run lots of different programs and we'll just be creating more experiences that are unique and allowing um, people to have access to services that they might never have had before. So organizing my home or um, eating a a very specific diet and working with a nutritionist or having people curate your um, outfits and have a personal shopper and making that be something that is not a luxury and is an approachable price point. Yeah, so, and that kind of, to me, goes back to that intersection of, of people and technology and how the, the technology, it seems, will become 
more and more common and, and commoditized in some ways so that we can do more with it. But the reason you invest in people is because they are kind of the, the special sauce to that equation, the, the emotional intelligence to understand and interpret that technology in a way that, that's meaningful to your customers. Exactly. Great. Um, all right. So I'm going to end on a, on a fun one. I'm curious what the most unexpected thing is you've had to do or someone at Hello Alfred has had to do for a client. <laughs> uh, strange requests that we've had. So yes. I think that the ones that are most fun usually involve pets or um, engagement proposals. So we had someone who asked for the blackest koi fish in New York. <laughs> and we validated that we had one of the blackest, which is really kind of a strange thing to do. Or taking someone's dog um, from their home to the, their office and to the groomer and back again. Stuff like that. Or filling right. an entire apartment with orchids, balloons, rose petals. We've become a part of members' lives at very special moments. And I'm really proud and happy about that. That's really sweet. It seems like there are countless stories that can come out of this one uh, this one business. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there. I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk with us. And um, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye, Megan. Bye, guys. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond. <laughs>